My name is Diana Riza. Pronouns are she, her, they. And I'm Shante Hanks. Welcome to the Diversity in Higher Education podcast. The Diversity in Higher Education podcast is recorded out of Southern Connecticut State University in New Haven, and it was developed to bridge the gap between academia and the community on issues of diversity, equity, and inclusion. I'm here with our host, Dr. Diana Riza, the university's first chief diversity, equity, and inclusion officer. Hello, everyone. I'm Diana Riza. Shantae, we're thrilled to have you with us today, and we take a step away from the pre- and post-election talk and dig into another incredibly important conversation, the forthcoming COVID vaccines and how the country is responding to the reports of health disparities in healthcare access and utilization. Today, we are so honored to have Dr. Takesha Dwan Everett, the Executive Director of Health Equity Solutions, an organization that advocates for change through legislation regulatory actions, and ensuring that decision makers are aware of key health equity priorities in Connecticut. And before taking the helm at HES, which is based right up 95 out of Hartford, Dr. Everett served as the Managing Director of Federal Government Affairs with the American Diabetes Association, where she brought strategic leadership on policy and advocacy initiatives to the White House, several federal agencies, and Congress, which led to important victories for people with and at risk for diabetes. Dr. Everett, thank you so much for being here with us today. Thank you, Shantae and Diane, for having me. It's a pleasure. So we want to talk about health disparities, of course, and and I couldn't think of a better person to join us this morning than Dr. Everett. So thank you for uh, giving us some time, because <laughs> I know you're quite busy, um, probably more so now than ever, given that we're in the middle of a health pandemic. It has been an incredibly difficult and challenging time uh, given the pandemic, but I couldn't imagine a more useful period of time, a way to use my time today, than to really talk about some of the experiences and lessons we're learning during this pandemic, and as well as what we knew beforehand. Well, let's, let's talk about that, because I, I want our listeners to understand how involved you really are. Um, and, and this is even before the pandemic, but I'm, I'm sure now um, you're taking the opportunity since this is all on the forefront and relevant. Um, this is your work, your life's work but people all of a sudden are actually paying attention to these issues that have always existed, and now they're at the surface, and particular health disparities with minority groups. Yeah, so I'll just start by saying, you know, Health Equity Solutions is about six years old, and I've been the inaugural executive director for the last five and a half years. And I'd like to say we've partially been slowly growing our brand, and, and by our brand, meaning the importance of listening to the people who are living with the inequities and disparities that exist and elevating those issues to policy and advocacy change. So I'd like to say we've been quiet and loud, slow (laughs) and intentional. Um, But now we're right here in COVID-19 and all of this work has become very clear to everybody what we already knew. People have uh, been suffering across the state of Connecticut in very different ways 
with the differences in health outcomes, the differences in health care access, the differences in delivery of their own health care. And when I talk about health care, I also include health status here. Uh, disparities like diabetes, high blood pressure, all of those things, we already knew about those, but the root causes of those disparities is what we've been trying to get people to really focus in on. The gross inequality in wealth, the gross segregation of the state and how we've paired that segregation with under-resourcing communities with the things that they need to thrive and survive. COVID-19 has just given us an opportunity to see that in a way that no one can ignore. And the numbers are laying bare to that. So it's been a very interesting process. Would you say that, you know, and I know Dr. Ariza is going to uh, love this question, as you've probably heard, <laughs> Southern is looking to become a social justice university. And so we're looking at uh, the current issues that's going on in our nation and how we can dovetail that, right, on the university campus, which is a microcosm of the world. And I know that you've been championing uh, dismantling <laughs> racism this summer, right? Um, I've, I've seen you, you talk about this and the work that you're doing. I know that you've gotten thousands of signatures and several towns have signed on um, to identify racism as a public health crisis. So would you say that this pandemic has, uh, well, two pandemics, let's say, uh, what's going on in, in this country right now has caused this like intersection of uh, systemic racism and healthcare. So I, I, I like to say to my staff and to anybody, you know, let's, it's, it's, a, it's an adage that I forget who it came from. I think it's one of our former presidents, but you don't want to let an opportunity go to waste. And this pandemic is an opportunity. And I don't want to sound, I'm not saying that it is an opportunity in an opportunistic way, meaning a manipulative way, but it is an opportunity for us in our country and particularly in our state to finally address some of the injustices that have occurred that are linked to structural and institutional racism. I feel like 2020 has shown us that we can no longer ignore that we are not all starting at the same place. We do not all have the same resources and thus we are not experiencing this pandemic in the same manner. And paired with that, what happened for us as an organization, you know, we've been doing this. We are an unapologetic uh, anti-racist organization, an unapologetic racial race forward organization, meaning we're looking at how race plays out in our society. But when we moved from our in our off in our offices to our homes because of the pandemic, we started to really think through how that was a privilege. That was a privilege that many of us in our organization had that most Americans do not have that most of our residents in Connecticut cannot afford. Working from home is a luxury that many don't have. And then erupted at that same time were the injustices and the unrest related to the injustices of the murders of Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor and George Floyd. And we just knew we had to do something, something had to be done. We knew the protests were gonna happen and we also know that cold Connecticut winters means that protests are not gonna continue. So there has to be some sort of action to galvanize the people. And we thought, what can happen on a local level? Let's start with a petition. And I got to tell you, just uh, to the listeners, petitions are not usually my thing. I just want to share that to everybody. 
<laughs> I, I've always understood them. I'll sign them because I understand how they work. But as a strategy for policy change, it wasn't my thing. But as we started to quickly see people sign on and really want to get engaged and ask the question, well, what else can I do? Aside from signing the petition, we saw people giving us increased donations because they understood the value of our organization of calling out structural racism and demanding policy change. We wanted people to feel the opportunity to make policy change and, and knew that the American the American Public Health Association had already embarked on this effort to declare racism a public health issue. And that's when we decided, let's do it. Let's try that here in Connecticut. We asked the governor to do it. And Governor Lamont made a statement that he didn't understand what that meant. And we wanted to continue to work with him on understanding that, but give people an opportunity to do something local. And that's when we just started going town by town, working with the people on the ground. And I think that's what's really important about our method and our, our belief and our value. We want to work with people who are closely located to the problems to resolve and create their own solutions that others are accountable to and that they are accountable for. So you're right. We have over a thousand signatures. We delivered that petition to the governor. We actually engage with the people who have signed the petition as we go town by town. We're now up to 18 towns of the 169 towns in Connecticut, because there's no county structure here, so you can't go from a county perspective like other states have done, because other states have done this through county level work. And um, we also have the first tribal nation in the United States to ever make this declaration as well. The Mashantucket Pequot tribal nation has done this. So like I said, slow and steady runs the race. We're, we're not here to undo 400 plus years of uh, anti-blackness and anti-racism overnight. Uh, and I should also say in anti-immigrant attitudes. Um, we're not here to do that overnight. We're in it for the long haul and we're asking our supporters our funders and your listeners, who we hope will become our supporters and join us in this fight, as well as Southern, um, who's looking to become a social justice institution to really make sure that we're in it for the long haul and not something that's just a statement for overnight success. You know, Shantae, if I, if I may, I, I, I just need to jump in here. Um, I, you know, Dr. Everett, you're, you're right on, on, on point um, when you talk about um, health disparities and I'm the activism that is needed um, to um, really, and I, I, I'm really happy to hear you say, this is, we're here for the long haul, even though we know that some of these disparities should have been um, eliminated a long time ago, but we're here, we're in for the long haul. Can, can you help us um, or maybe talk a little bit about, you know, the activism that you see in the community? And, and I have to say Southern, um, again, a, a recent arrival, I've seen that one of our visions and missions is to work very closely with community, and that cuts across all disciplines. Um, in, in, in your work, um, how do you see this um, bridging the community activism that you see around health disparity and college and universities? Can you say a little bit about that? Absolutely. Well, one of the things I think that's important for the role of colleges and universities, I should, I should note that I am a part-time professor, so I have an adjunct faculty position uh, at UConn, Quinnipiac, and Yale, but I'm only actively teaching at Yale in the spring. And here's, here's what I think is important. We have to make sure both that we're introducing the understanding of health inequity and health equity in our work, um, the ideas of racial equity and racial justice in our work across all disciplines. 
disciplines, because what we've learned very swiftly, and I, I'm probably going to get a little bit of a laugh here, but it's, it's something that I wanted <laughs> to make sure people kind of took in. We've talked for years and years and years about health disparities or disparities generally. And in the language that we've used, we've compared people to a reference group. So we've made some sort of statement that people have heard before. People in Connecticut who are Black or Latino or two times as likely to have diabetes than mm -hmm. people who are white. We've done yeah, that we've for heard years. That. You're right. we've so heard here's that. the thing that we've done. Here's what we've done with that, though. We've created this outward statement of disparities that gives us an opportunity to think, well, something's wrong with those people. And they need to take personal responsibility or change their behavior in order to make a change in that gap, rather than looking at the structural reasons why these diseases and chronic conditions are happening in the communities and within individuals, regardless of what community they live in. So that moves us to really focusing on the, the, the root causes, those root reasons why these are happening and that fundamentally looks at structural racism. So I'm looking to universities to change how they teach, fundamentally incorporating, and particularly because you can do this at a higher ed piece, fundamentally incorporating the importance of understanding structural and institutional racism as the backbone for many of the differences and disparities we see in our country, and particularly in Connecticut, because of the rich history we have here, with both having to be the first, uh, what do we call ourselves, the Constitution State. Constitution State, that's right. As well as having some of the wonderful uh, universities we have, both public and private here, we can be leaders in reforming education to make clear connections between structural racism and the disparities and differences we see in health, the disparities and differences we see in wealth, the disparities and differences we see in education, and becoming those key people who activate our students to become activists in this way. And here's what I mean by activism. And I'm probably talking a little bit too long. I apologize. So I'll, I'll kind of oh, cut you're, it you're right. to this. No, good, good, good flow, good flow. Keep going. No, no, good. But here's what I mean by activism, because when you are in the university setting, many people are going for some sort of degreed, um, some sort of expert degree level experience. So you want to become a person who works in public health and a public health expert, or you want to become a medical doctor or a lawyer, et cetera. That doesn't mean you cannot be an activist through the work that you do. Making the connections clearly between the work that you do, what you see with the patients and the people you serve and the communities that you work in and live in with the higher systems changes that need to occur and happen. And how do you galvanize support from people? How do you use yourself and the expertise you have to really create the change you want to see? So I'm excited because one of the things I know is students, there are no greater activists in the world sometimes than students because they don't have anything to lose. And what I mean by they don't have anything to lose, they haven't gotten bought into this notion, and particularly millennials, they haven't gotten bought into a notion that activism has to look a certain way or it has to be a certain thing. They see an issue, they want to jump on that issue, and they will work hard to create a, a change and a solution to that issue. And I think as a university, we have to be able to incorporate, encourage that and incorporate that more into learning. Absolutely. And, and to your point, 
they are uncoopted. So yeah, they are the best at uh, 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 at getting folks involved. They're very passionate and they speak their truth. And I love it. And, and it's funny, you answered a question that I had for you, which was going to be, how can colleges and universities take part in these efforts? So thank you. You made our jobs even easier. Um, so let me ask you this. And I, I, I think this might be a little controversial. Um, but you talk about, I've heard you speak about culturally relevant care matters. And it, it speaks to what you just were saying about we've always talked about health disparities. We've always said, you know, um, how uh, black and brown people are, are, are maybe more susceptible to diabetes. And, and recently, I'd say that it, it was really, um, for some people, it was jarring uh, the Surgeon General's comments. Some people felt like, you know, he was speaking straight talk to straight understanding, and others felt like what he said, what he said, was uh, kind of blame the victim. So I wanted to get your perspective on that. And is there a difference between culturally relevant care uh, versus the remarks of our Surgeon General during the pandemic? And for those of our listeners that aren't aware, what Surgeon General Adams said during one of the press conferences, he spoke about, you know, the importance of social distancing and hand washing, but then he went a step further and he tried to appeal to black and brown communities. And he said that they need to step up and think about Abuela, Big Mama, and Pop Pop, and avoid alcohol, tobacco, and drugs because of the disproportionate amount of COVID cases in these communities. So Dr. Everett, what is your thoughts on that? Ooh, the controversy. So let me say a few things that I think <laughs> might be controversial in response to that. Um, oh, and actually it may not be. I just gonna, it's gonna be my truth regardless. So we'll see where it goes. Um, I think, yes, culturally relevant care is important. I wanna be very clear what I mean by that. Uh, culturally relevant care can look like a provider who looks like you, um, who has shared lived experience with you. It could also look like a provider who has learned um, the journey that cultural humility takes us on that we should not lead with our own cultural lens and just, and think that everyone has that lens, but be very clear about our own cultural lenses, our own implicit biases, our own unconscious biases and how that impacts us and really seed our culture to the other person's humanity and allow them to be a partner in the care that they receive and a, and a, a person who states how they need their, their care to receive. So the short version of that is, it is not just the responsibility of black and brown people to deliver care that is culturally relevant to black and brown people. It is the responsibility of all of us. I think the part that is controversial for my beliefs is that what we have done typically in talking about racism is we've, we, so, so when we talk about racism and the impact of it, we tend to really focus on interpersonal racism, which means whether you or I like each other or have prejudices um, related to skin color or the perceived notion of superiority um, and inferiority based on race. That's how we usually think about it. And even if you talk to people, many of the things they point to go to that. I'm saying one, we have to dig deeper and look at structural ways that interpersonal racism has now influenced our policies and our institutions and how we actually act and we reinforce it through that. But the other side of this is we have to look at internalized racism, which most people do not even factor into this. And what I mean by internalized racism, it is the way in which 
we internalize superiority and inferiority and the way then we act and talk in regards to that. And that's not just a conversation for black and brown people or people of color. Um, it is also a conversation for whites. And what I mean by that is when you have lived a life of privilege that has created a thought process or notion that you have a, that white is the superior race, then you act in, in some of those ways. For individuals who are people of color, we internalize a notion of inferiority and that white is white and that there is some superior class that is not us and that for us to get closer to that, we have to approximate or assimilate to whiteness. Now, where am I going with this? That leads us to all think about how do we change our behaviors and assimilate our attitudes and do things differently than what is either the stereotypical definition of how we do things or the believed narrative about how we do things. That leads me to the Surgeon General. I think his comments were deplorable. I really? think it was I think it was really problematic to make this assumption that how people of color are going to respond to the challenges of COVID-19 and all of the all of the traumatic events related to this were going to be we were going to do that by turning to what is a stereotype using or abusing or misusing whichever word you'd like to use I'll say misusing substances including food alcohol and tobacco I think it's also not rooted in the structural and historical understanding of how companies preyed on communities of color to feed them poor food, to encourage their use of tobacco and alcohol to deal with the trauma of racism in America. So I feel like it was a little, I feel like what he was attempting to do was to say, hey, this is a crisis. It's going to create some really, really challenges for everybody on the mental health side. And we know that what we've done in this country hasn't been so great at providing people of color the tools they need outside of spiritual and religious institutions to deal with mental health access. We actually know that. So here's what we are encouraging you to do. Look out for your mental health, the mental health of your family and loved ones, and make sure that you have a way to access a mental health provider. And if you don't, here are the ways we can help you. Now, that's what, what I think he wanted to say, but it really isn't how it came out. We haven't really heard much from him since, <laughs> now that I think about it. However, he did come to Connecticut right before uh, the pandemic started. And I also heard him on a uh, NAACP town hall. And he did such a fabulous job in both um, instances. It, it, it was really uh, unfortunate that what he said was received in, in the way in which he said it. Because I agree with you. I think what he meant to say and what was actually said may have been two different things. I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt. But it is concerning when you have someone with a, a, a status such as Surgeon General of the United States, right? So I'm going to assume that he probably has been in a classroom. And even if he hasn't, because of who he is and the title uh, and, and what he represents, there are folks that are going to take what he says and they're going to run with that. 
right? There's professors even, um, because we, we are talking higher ed here as well, and how it relates, we're talking about what's happening in our classrooms, you know, we're, we're preparing our students right now to be healthcare professionals, human service professionals, uh, professors in, in those areas, and there are many of them that think this way and will probably share that same line of thinking with their students. What do you say about that? Because we need to we need to fix that right now and pivot on it. Yeah, I mean, again, like I said, I, I think he was very well-meaning and probably if he had more time, could have gone in more depth about what he intended, but it was a soundbite. And what we have to be mindful of, even as I'm talking to you all today, right, I'll be thinking for the rest of <laughs> of the week, you know, what, what soundbite did I include in there that could be misused in the narrative or feed into a dominant narrative? And what you explained is exactly right. What has happened or what can happen or what I will imagine has happened is people have heard that statement and have then used that in a, in a number of ways to either encourage or discourage people from doing things, reinforcing behavioral solutions and behavioral tactics and interventions to much more deeply rooted issues, both in the uh, classroom. And I have to say here, I wanna be very, very fair because I think um, behavioral interventions are important. I just come from the lens that you have to talk about the structural pieces that are leading those behaviors to happening, um, and then we can then, and then we can deal with those behavioral issues. Meaning, it's hard to tell somebody who doesn't have a grocery store in their neighborhood to eat better. That's right. And so, any program you're designing that's focused on that's right. balanced diets. It's only going to have a limited impact if people can't get to that higher level issue of the grocery store. So it's right. one of the things from an education perspective, what I think we could do better um, in higher ed is making sure we do a good pair share. What I just said I thought would have been great for the Surgeon General is, I said pair share, I'm sorry, you can tell I'm an academic, um, a good pairing of the behavioral with the structural and making sure people understand we can do behavioral interventions, but we need to make sure that we understand the structural and root cause of why these things are occurring and communicate it that way. Dr. Everett, I want to go back to something you said earlier. And, and as, as the Chief Diversity Officer at Southern, I, I truly support what you said, that our educate, educating should not be on the backs of brown, black, and other communities. Uh, healing, trying to get at um, the health disparities should not be on those communities' backs. At the same time, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to phrase this or uh, um, maybe push you a little bit to think, and I know you have something to say about this, but we have students on our campus that are saying, for as much as we know that it's everybody's responsibility, we have students that are saying that we need to have more faculty, particularly faculty and staff, but faculty that, rep that look like us, that come from our communities too. And what I keep hearing, and I've been at several institutions now to say that there is a trend that doesn't stop. And that is particularly in the health professional fields, I often hear faculty search committees say, we just can't find, we just cannot find enough black folk, brown folk <laughs> that, that are in these disciplines. Um, and so here we go back to the system, as you just clearly articulated, that we got to get 
at structures. Can you, can you offer some insights about how could the, the search committees, particularly the health professional search committees, do better? What, could, what, what are we missing here? Oh, Diane, you're trying to get me to laugh. <laughs> I'm, trying, I'm trying to do like a big belly laugh on this one. <laughs> okay. When I hear search committee say, we can't find, it's so hard. Oh, we tried. And we can't find people of color. I just start by asking, well, where have you looked? And what was your process? And what is your search criteria? What is your filter on who gets in and who gets through and who doesn't? Because here's what we know. Um, Blacks, Latinos, Asians, all have entered into, Native Americans, all have entered into the educational system at different places and spaces throughout our history. We've not always had the same opportunities and we still don't get the same opportunities when we go to a university or, or, or when we go to school. So when you have searches for healthcare professionals that use words like demonstrated expertise in leading a healthcare institution, what are the likelihoods that people of color have actually had the opportunity to demonstrate expertise rather than having the promise of that expertise and being able to show that they can do it? Are you looking at institutions of color or places that have been primarily uh, centers for people of color and having the right recruiting package to encourage them to come to a place that is as, forgive my language, white as Connecticut? Are you, shoot, are you showing the ways in which those faculty will be supported because New Haven is one of the more multicultural areas in the state, but are you showing them and do you have mechanisms within that will help them integrate? <clears throat> and I don't mean racially integrate, I mean assimilate into this culture that is here. Now, excuse me, not assimilate, integrate into this culture that is here and feel supported. Will they have, and I'm a, I'm a transplant. So I know what I'm talking about when I say this, like I'm thinking about the things that I did not have. There weren't resources to explain to me how to connect to the black community where, and, and I like a lot of different diverse types of food and ethnicities and I like music and I like culture. So where do I find these things? That isn't necessarily something that people had listed. And so I think there are cultural ambassadors that are missing at the university level to encourage throughout the recruiting process. Hey, if you come here, you will not only be comfortable on our campus, but you'll be comfortable in our community because we know that we have things that are a myriad of things that we can offer that are useful to you. I think we don't advertise enough our, our proximity to Boston and New York, as well as the resources we have right here. Yes. So it makes it really challenging because people see Connecticut as like a New England rural town because it is very small, right? <laughs> very so they small. also think that it's, it's, it's really small, but it's so rich and diverse and has a lot of character that I think we miss in the recruiting process. Now, here's the other piece I want to mention and to your question, Diane, about uh, students want more students who look like them. Students want more students, not more students, more faculty that look like them. Um, and that's really important because if they don't see what they can be, then they don't know that it's an opportunity or an option for them. And it also offers an, a comfort that this person understands what I'm going through on some level, can relate to me on some level, and can offer a lens that is different than the dominant kind of culture of the dominant lens. Even though 
it's in an institutional setting. So we all have to understand as academics, we are institutionalized through our way of thinking. And we have the theories that exist and we have all of those different pieces, but we bring a different analysis and a lens to it. Particularly if you're a practical or an applied person, like I'm an applied sociologist. So I look at things, I use pop culture, I use current events, I use a number of things to really go back to these theories that happened hundreds of years ago by men because there were few women and mostly white men that developed these theories centuries ago that have no root to what we're seeing right now in the mind of a person who's living this life right here. But in quite actuality, it's the reason why we keep using the theories because it really is kind of rooted in what we see here. So there's a comfort in seeing people who look like you because it shows you what your opportunity for success can look like. It also gives you an opportunity to see that there's something different that does not let white professors and white faculty off the hook in revamping and changing their curriculums and their teaching style to better address the needs of their, their uh, students of color and to make sure that they're getting things across in multiple ways. And I will just add on this. I say that as somebody who actively uses pop culture. So that means I can't just watch the things that I enjoy, right? Mm -hmm. Every time I teach a class, I actually go through with very deep methodic, like with a method and ask, Tell me some of your favorite, what are you watching on television right now? So this is a strategy for any of the faculty listening on how you can incorporate Thank this you. into your class. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> tell, me your t tell me what you're watching on television right now and give me a song that's your favorite song or that song that you just can't get out of your head because it's just annoying. And what I do from that is I actually create a playlist and I go and listen to every song that I've not listened to before that I don't know. And I actually watch a few episodes of everything that I hadn't seen that the students have offered. Because then I can pull scenes and moments mm. from that that they can relate to because they're actively watching it now. And they can see this is how this connects and this is how it works in the world and this is what we're doing. And that's whether I'm teaching sociology 101 and I have theories or whether I'm teaching the advocacy and activism class that I'm going to be teaching next semester. It's really about how do I tap into what you know and what your lived experience is now so I can provide you the background and the backbone of this discipline that I need you to have. Um, so that was a little long-winded. If, if you need me to wrap it up, let me just say, we need to change our recruiting strategies. Where are we going? How are we finding people? Are we going to institutions such as Black, historically Black colleges and universities? Are we going to densely populated areas where people of color live? And are we effectively creating cultural ambassadors in our recruiting process to make it attractive for those people to come here once we make what I hope is a competitive offer to live here and to teach here? You know, I, and, and I have to say to anybody listening to this podcast, did you hear that Dr. Everett is an applied sociologist because <laughs> that sociology um, can, can be a phenomenal lens to understanding structural inequity, that it's an incredible perspective and discipline to study that can move you to other disciplines. So thank you for, for that. I was, I knew that you were, that I, I had studied you a little bit and knew that you were a sociologist. The way you articulated how that discipline can help you inform how to be a practitioner. You did that beautifully. Thank you, Dr. Everett. 
Thank you. It is the, it is the, it's the golden nugget that I have. It's my secret weapon, to be fair, that I don't make a secret at all. Um, I think, I, I do think that there are um, gifts that I have been given to do the analysis in the way that I look at the world, but there is no better definite, like if I have to get into a theoretical discussion, I can pull out my marks and I can connect it to is what's happening right now. I can look at the election through the lens of Marx and Du Bois and, and talk about it in that way. But I can also create change using what I'm learning actively, consistently. And so I, 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 don't, I don't encourage anyone to do any one particular discipline. I think it's important that you find the discipline that works for you, but whatever the discipline is, make sure you're doing things from an applied perspective and that you understand the theoretical piece. I'm a person whose fundamental, fundamental belief is if I can't explain what I'm doing to somebody's 76 year old grandma on a street corner, <laughs> I'm not good at my job. <laughs> I know that you're a member of the state vaccine advisory committee. Right. So I, I'm just curious of whether this group will be making recommendations concerning the administering and the access to the vaccine, which I feel like are two different questions. And the reason why I ask uh, the latter part is because I think having you here, someone on the State Advisory Committee with your experience, um, you'd be the best person to ask. There are factions that believe first responders should have first access to uh, the vaccine, right? And I understand that line of thinking. And then there's others uh, that are talking about the black and brown communities, and there's some overlap there, obviously, but uh, the black and brown community specifically because of um, the disproportionate amount of members of that community that have been adversely affected by COVID. So I'm just curious, given what we've talked about you know, during our discussion here, and then your experience, what you're seeing out there on the front lines, what are your thoughts on that? So I'm going to answer your COVID question, but there's one thing I want to make sure that I don't leave unsaid, because we're, again, sound bites turn into narratives, and narratives can turn into whether they're false or real. I want to highlight one thing. When I talk about the 76-year-old grandmother on the street corner, what I mean by that. I mean that if I have a chance encounter with somebody who's probably a female in her 70s, she's more than likely someone who doesn't have a bachelor's degree or higher education. And so I choose that image as an aggregate for sure. If we think about somebody 76 years of age, that means they were born in the early 1940s, or and in fact, exactly 1944. And the likelihood that women born in 1994 have a higher ed degree is less likely than who we are today. Because we know that women are far more educated, far more uh, going to school at higher levels uh, than they were before. And so I want to be very clear when I say that there's the tendency and the likelihood that that person doesn't have a higher education. Now, to the point about COVID-19 and the vaccine advisory group, I am very thankful to Governor Lamont for making me a part of that group, particularly because I bring the lens of equity. And I mentioned already to your listeners that the work we do at Health Equity Solutions is unapologetically race forward. So our lens is specifically and unapologetically looking at how racial and ethnic minoritized individuals in Connecticut will be receiving and prioritized in the process of the vaccine. What I mean by prioritized and receiving is we know the long, let me actually stop saying we, 
I know and my organization knows the long and sordid history that Black Americans and Latino Americans and Latinos generally have had in the United States with race and health and experimentation and, in, and unfair and unjust experimentation without their knowledge that we've had in history. So we know the historical context of this as an organization. So we know that there's distrust in those communities when it comes to anybody talking about a vaccine or anything related to that. We already know that. So we do believe and we do know that this pandemic has at the same time hit those same communities in disproportionate ways and numbers. And so if we don't communicate the importance of a safe and effective vaccine uh, protocol to Black and Latino communities, particularly and specifically, we know that we're going to lose more lives than necessary in those populations. So from my perspective, I'm actually on the allocation subcommittee. So I'm looking also at how we prioritize those communities in the distribution of the vaccine. And what I mean by that is Black and Brown individuals in our state are more on the front line. So they are represented, overrepresented in our retail positions, in our essential worker positions, including emergency response. Um, nurses are even in, in um, the hierarchy of, of work in general, more likely to be people who are going to experience exposure to COVID-19, bus drivers, doctors, every, every place that there is, we know that we are there. And so I think it's important that we not only look at this from a perspective of who's at risk from adverse outcomes generally from COVID, on an aggregate level, those people should be included as well. And we know that ha that's been the elderly, those who have underlying chronic conditions. But we also need to look at who's at risk for continued disproportionate impact. And we know that the research is showing us and the numbers are showing us that that remains Black, Latino, Native American. And I think that's the right order, actually, from the statistics and um, Asian populations in our state. Um, I also think it's gonna be important to communicate well. Um, and have trusted people who are the advisors communicating the vaccine. So I'm someone who has done a lot of soul searching on this. And as soon as we have a safe and, a safe and effective vaccine and it's available, I'm personally going to do it because I can't go out and tell and encourage other people that they should if I myself do not participate. But I also think that we need to make sure, one, safety, two, effective, Three, we have the right populations in mind of who's first and why we're first. So I think the why is an important piece to the communication that's number four. Thank you. Wow. I mean, <laughs> I really appreciate you adding the historical context. That's extremely important and relevant. And I too want to thank Governor Lamont as well for having the foresight to include you on this committee. Um, your perspective and your voice is absolutely needed. Dr. Ariza? There's so many more conversations that we can continue to have. And don't be surprised, Dr. Everett, if we um, follow up with you at a, at a, a later date to um, continue the conversation because we didn't touch on this too much today, even though we, we know that the, the physical piece of our health is as, as critical as the mental part. And um, we are seeing a rise um, um, in our community 
not just with COVID, but prior to that in, in how we think about, particularly as, as folk talk about mental anguish, mental disparity on so many different levels and comfort with seeking out counseling as a way of support. And uh, what we've noticed that the trend of our college students have, has, um, has changed uh, in how they see uh, mental health as important to their overall um, success. And that therapist is good. It doesn't just have to be auntie, granny, um, my best friend, supporting me along the way but um i i would I, I would want to encourage us to maybe bring you back to talk a, about the mental health piece that is is really um affecting all of our communities and and yet many of our college students as i said um are not seeing that as a a vehicle or a, an avenue to seek out support and refuge I welcome the invitation to come back and speak with you both. It's like talking to your best girlfriend. It was very comfortable. <laughs> yeah, and um, I hope the listeners enjoyed it as much as I did. And I welcome the opportunity to come back and talk about mental health. And really, um, maybe we can bring on another guest with us to talk about it. But I think the, the world we're living in is very different than the one many of us um, or, or many of our four, four parents lived in and our access uh, to information, our access and experience with people and to people is very different. And it really makes it challenging at times to think through how do I deal with the stress, the trauma, the various experiences that are happening. Um, and I, I'd love to talk about mental health and mental health access and some resources that people can actually engage in. Yeah, because the mental health and counseling uh, issue is, it's a big one. It's, it's really important. We know right now, in particular, so many folks are dealing with anxiety um, regarding the two pandemics, which we didn't even get into it yet, because that's a whole um, other discussion. Um, it it kind of it can be dovetailed, but we definitely need more time. Yeah. Um, it's funny, earlier, Dr. Everett said uh, something about the, uh, oh, you were, you've been talking about this for the last five or six years. Um, and I, and my mind just went to that's how long they say we've been involved in this COVID pandemic, even though it's been, you know, less than a year, it feels like five or six years. So, uh, with that in mind, we need time to kind of unpack that and how our young people in particular, um, deal with these issues that they're dealing with right now with the two pandemics, as they say, and more specifically how the black and brown community views counseling because we know that that's a whole nother topic that we can discuss. Um, but I think it's getting better. Yeah. I, 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 want to, I want to say I think it's getting better and, and that more and more folks are open to it. So I, I'm very interested to hear what Dr. Everett thinks about that. But for those listening, we'll have to uh, schedule that at a future date, but look for it. I'd, be well, I'd welcome the opportunity. And thank you for those of you that have been listening. Uh, and, and please share with us some ideas of topics that you'd like for us to discuss. I know that we are bringing some really thought-provoking and timely topics, but we can't think of everything. So please share with us some ideas.